All right. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett talking about all of the most contentious issues. They're so contentious, you're not allowed to talk about them in the mainstream. But we, we didn't get into the 9-11 Museum scandal. Uh, we'll have to bring on Stephen Rosenbaum on a different show. But we can definitely get into the election integrity scandal. Actually, the scandal is the lack of integrity with Jonathan Simon. He's one of America's leading election integrity experts. He's been essentially sounding the warning, a kind of a, a Cassandra for uh, many, many years. And I think he kind of knew that something like the 2020 election implosion would be coming. Of course, nobody could have predicted the specifics of that. Nobody could have predicted that Donald Trump would be the face of the election integrity movement. Well, maybe the calling out election fraud. You know, back in 2004, I wished that people had stormed the Capitol over this issue and called out the fraudulent 2004 presidential election, but Skull and Bonesman John Kerry wasn't interested in that. So now we have Donald Trump uh, as the face of the movement that doesn't trust American elections. So be careful what you wish for. Anyway, uh, let's get into it with Jonathan Simon and, and update uh, ourselves on, on what's going on with the fallout from 2020. So, hey, welcome, John. How are you? Hey, Kevin. Hanging in. Um, how are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. Uh, just uh, pretty much hanging in there too. It's uh, yeah. It's a it's a crazy crazy time. Uh, Curse to living in. It's interesting been a, times. it's been a year. Yeah, it's been a year. I mean, there have been. So, I mean, I in California, of course, we had the wildfires, and uh, of course we COVID, <laughs> and I blew a disc in December. So oh it was goodness. just a, it was an interesting year all around. I was actually flat on my back and rather heavily medicated when January 6th rolled around. Um, So I was doing the best I could at that point to, you know, kind of uh, collect, continue collecting data and doing some analysis and assessing things. Um, But I was, you know, I was, I was on one cylinder Um, and, you know, you're absolutely right. Be careful what you wish for. Um, I don't think it was unpredictable. However, what happened uh, in this election um, and as a matter of fact, some of us predicted it in one way or another um, for uh, years. I had been one of my warnings, um, Cassandra-esque warnings, had been, you know, if you leave election integrity lying around like a loaded gun, uh, you know, on the dining room table, somebody's going to pick it up and use it with bad intent. Yeah, yeah um, Chekhov could have predicted that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You introduce it in the first paragraph and it's going to go off. And, you know, the, the point being that, you know, it, it it was there to be used. It was rejected, as you say, by John Kerry, by a, a plethora of uh, losing, you know, losing Democratic candidates, especially in suspect elections. Um, none of the important Things that would have come to light, vulnerabilities, flaws, um, actual exploitation of vulnerabilities, um, none of that uh, was exposed or came to light. Um, so the, the process continued um, to be vulnerable and its level of security and transparency uh, inadequate, to say the least. And in fact, you know, its legitimacy fundamentally indefensible. And then, you know, you had Trump come along and 
very predictably, there were quite a few. I mean, even in the pre-election edition of Code Red, they basically said, look, we're looking at a double whammy here. Uh, it's quite possible that Carl Rove and company or the, the usual suspects um, may engage in not only, uh, you know, suppression tactics. We, we saw that with, with DeJoy and the USPS uh, and various other forms of suppression, but also manipulation since they still have the inside track at ESNS and, you know, hard intercivic um, and had been apparently willing to use it in the past. Um, so we could see a manipulated election, not necessarily for the benefit of Donald Trump, but for the benefit of the Republican Party and its other candidates. Um, and at the same time, we could see an election that was uh, legitimate or quasi-legitimate, at least, uh, which was then challenged with all sorts of bogus um uh, you know, uh, evidence or lack of evidence, basically evidence-free um, challenges. And the system really could not effectively um, and persuasively prove that it was legitimate because it's so non-transparent. Um, it would be very difficult for the system to uh, persuasively defend itself to the losers. You, you don't really have to defend yourself to the winners, uh, but to the losers, which in this case were Donald Trump's fan base and political base, um, it, the, the system was going to have a very hard time, uh, proving that that election, uh, was, was, uh, on, on the level, um, not helped by the fact that Trump himself and much of his base is just basically irrational and was running on the premise that if I don't win, it's illegitimate because I'm a winner and I can't lose. And obviously that's ridiculous, ridiculous premise. Uh, but when you got millions and millions of people running on that premise, you want to have a system that can prove to them or prove to at least a, a good portion of them uh, that, yes, in fact, uh, your candidate lost. And this was very difficult for this system to do. Yeah, it seems like they're just asserting it rather than proving it. And there are movements for election audits in various states, including here in Wisconsin. They just uh, got something going in the legislature. So is that a way to actually prove or, or show evidence about what really happened in the election or not? Well, again, it, it, it's a very sticky wicket. And uh, I think m most of the people involved in um, election integrity work have had to deal with that over the uh, preceding months uh, because there's, you know, the general sense that the public should have access, uh, that these uh, elections should not be uh, shrouded in secrecy, the vote counting process, the actual ballots. Uh, these should be accessible. They should be open to audit. They should be open to recount. And at the same time, when we look at what's going on in Arizona, in Maricopa County with the cyber ninjas, um, that's not the kind of audit you want to see, whatever side you're on, um, try to uh, either challenge or establish uh, the, the legitimacy of an election or the accuracy of, of a vote count, because in and of itself, uh, it is so non-transparent and so driven uh, by a, uh, you know, a, a very strongly 
uh, partisan uh, group without oversight, without adequate oversight, uh, and in some cases without any oversight. Um, so, you know, we have to be really careful because, yes, in a very general sense, we want to have a method of uh, verifying or challenging um elections where the votes have been counted not in public and counted on computers in the pitch dark of cyberspace. Uh, we want to have that. But at the same time, when things go on, like has been going on in uh, Maricopa County now, dragging into the fourth month, I believe, uh, with no chain of custody and no supervision and all sorts of um you know, flaws in the approach and uh, being undertaken by a company with with extremely strong partisan pedigree and absolutely no experience in election uh, auditing and election forensics. I mean, that is, as Brad Friedman has referred to it, a, a clown show. Um, and you can't just dismiss it because it's going on. It's it's happening. It is. They will come up with a report of some sort and who the hell knows what that's going to, you know, uh, contain or entail. Um, but you you really if that's the model and that's what's being replicated in other states, uh, you know, being driven by again, by this partisan sense that, well, we couldn't possibly have lost. Um, so there must be something illegitimate here, which is a very, very weak uh, slender read to base it all on, um, then we're really not making any advance in election forensics. We're, we're going backwards. Well, how did that go off the rails in Arizona? How, how is it being done and how should it have been done? How could you get uh, transparency, uh, a real sort of recount that everybody on, on both sides can watch happening? Well, boy, that's, that's a, that is a tricky question. Um, there, the recount, even as it's being done, was quite expensive. And the funding for it, most of the funding was private funding. And again, coming from partisan sources. So right away, you're off the rails. Um, I mean, it, 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 the, the whole elections are such high stakes games, uh, that you really need, uh, adversarial oversight. Really, I mean, to at any stage, uh, whether you're counting on election night itself or you're installing equipment, uh, programming, whatever stage it's at, um, if that pipeline uh, is non-transparent, if you've got a you know two-inch piece of duct tape over a ten-foot pipeline, that's where the questions about honesty, accuracy, legitimacy are going to arise. So the whole thing has to be transparent. Now, in calling for this audit, um, it was called for by um, the Republican Senate, which by law in Arizona has this right. Um, I don't think that was uh, legally challenged. Um, and it was called for uh, really at the behest of, of Trump. Um and it was called for uh, against the wishes of the Maricopa County Commission, uh, which was a Republican majority commission. Uh, now, has there been corruption in Maricopa County in the past? Yes. Has it involved Democrats and Republicans? Yes. Uh, but a lot of that has been cleaned up over the last decade. Uh, many thanks to John Brakey and Bill Risner. Uh, Maricopa County has been run much better uh, of late. 
Um, so they were, you know, they were saying, look, we, we, we already ran a couple of audits. Those audits were questionable thoroughness and they're, they're, they're certainly could levy some criticisms of the audits, uh, as, you know, the same thing with the recounts in Georgia. They're, they're always, um, issues that come up about whether it's being done right. It's very difficult, um, to audit or recount an election. Um, and the further you get from election day, the harder it becomes, uh, the harder it becomes to demonstrate the chain of custody of the ballots has been properly maintained, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, ballots get lost, ballots get stored, uh, count is lost, boxes get misnumbered, et cetera, et cetera. It's very difficult, which is one reason why some of us at least advocate for public observable counting uh, on election night itself, even if that takes a day or two. Um, and, uh, because you want to get it right in, in the first count and you want to have trust in the first count. So you want to have that count be public, publicly observable. Um, now in this case, they were counting, um, recounting in Maricopa County's large county. It's Phoenix and the Metro, uh, Phoenix, uh, 2.1 million ballots. Now, that's a lot of ballots. If they had gone in and designated, okay, we're going to sample this, this, that, and the other precinct. We have some suspicions about the returns from these precincts. And we're going to count 10,000 ballots of precincts that were suspect uh, based on statistical forensics uh, and pattern analysis. Then they could have done the whole thing publicly, observably, and in probably a week as opposed to four months, non-observably, with all sorts of color-coded T-shirts and boxes moving here, there, and the other place, and rotating, you know, crazy, uh, lazy Susans. Um, you're trying to recount 2.1 million ballots. You're trying to do it ex parte as a, as a partisan operation, really without um, the real buy-in from the county in, in America, Basically, counties run elections for better or worse. It's a, it's a local enterprise uh, and you're not getting their buy in. You're getting grudging cooperation at best. And you're trying to set this up and do all this an incredibly high profile um, under the relentless pressure uh, from Donald Trump and his, you know, minions. Um, you know, it's not going to end well. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it looks like it's not going to end well. We don't know what the report's going to say, but it certainly has not been a model for how you want to do this. I mean, this is really fundamentally a combination of undermining democracy itself, which at this point is clearly the GOP's best hope of remaining a viable and competitive party on in, on the national scene uh, is by actually undermining the institutions of democracy, cutting back on the vote, um, you know, suppressing the vote, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's been a sort of combination of, of, of undermining the democratic process and, you know, gratifying the, the uh, a rabid base that has been moved to storm the Capitol um, by Donald Trump. And those are forces that are really not very compatible with bipartisan processes that everybody can observe and buy into and trust. I mean, you, you know, when you're storming the Capitol one minute 
and you're doing a, a, a highly partisan audit without oversight the next minute, and you're screaming that you had a sacred landslide stolen from you, uh, when all the forensics go in the opposite direction, that actually Donald Trump's popular vote defeat, rather than being 7 million votes, was closer to 13 million votes. That's what all the, that's the analysis I'm working on now has to do with the, with the forensics from that election. Um, you know, that is, that is, that really is a circus and it's very disruptive. Um, and I think that's really fundamentally the purpose. It's, it's on the one hand, it's to assuage the ego of one man, uh, who is, uh, very incapable of, of acknowledging a defeat. Um, and we knew this kind of going in. There were books written about this. Um, you know, Lawrence Douglas, the, the professor at Amherst, will he go? Will Trump go? And um, the answer in much of his book was no. We can expect something very much along these lines. Um, well, let, so let, let, me, these, let me just interject yeah. a kind of a the devil's advocate perspective that Trump, as narcissistic as he is and as predictably as, as he was going to be challenging any defeat, may have had a point to a certain extent, not so much in, in the vote counting aspect of it, but clearly the mainstream media, the, most of the mainstream media seemed to be hyper-partisan on the anti-Trump side, maybe for some good reasons, I don't know. But it, in some areas, they clearly went overboard, such as suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story. That was bizarre, having it actually banned from Twitter when it was published in the New York Post. And it, it seemed to be pretty much uh, passing the smell test as far as it really was uh, Hunter's laptop. And there's no evidence whatsoever it came from the KGB, et cetera, et cetera. So there obviously was a concerted effort by an element of the oligarchs that I would argue really rule America and our fake democracy. They, you know, they gave, one element of oligarchs gave Trump his first term. Another element didn't want to give him a second. And so maybe he has a point. Um, I think you're, you're onto something. I mean, we have a bit of a different view about how deep the deep state is and, you know, how effective it is. Um, I do agree that the media was, I mean, yeah, if it didn't start out, you know, 90% outside of Fox News and OANN, um, you know, biased against Trump, it, it certainly wound up there. Um, I think much of that was his own doing. It's not like he came in, um, you know, neutral and innocent and they just had it in for him. Uh, I think he was extremely provocative and extremely dangerous. So, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of understandable that reaction. On the other hand, I understand his reaction. I actually believe it might even go beyond that. I actually believe he might have been led to believe by his handlers uh, that that he had nothing to worry about, that he was going to win, uh, that the fix was in one way or the other, and you're going to have a sacred landslide. Um, and I think when push came to shove, um, the evidence that I'm working on um, basically shows that the fix was in uh, against the Democratic candidates uh, for Senate, for House, for state legislature, um, way down the ballot. Um, but not for Trump, at least not to make Trump a winner. Uh, the interesting thing is that there was enough red shift. And I think listeners probably know what the red shift is, is when vote counts come out to the right of polling or uh, other baselines. Uh, and there was there was enough red shift to cut Trump's popular vote margin of defeat in half. 
and that's a lot of red shift. I mean, that's that's a that's that's about six million votes. So, so what are your forensic sources for that? Uh, there's polling, of course, is a major one. Yeah, I mean, what's uh, and this is where it's difficult to have audio only because I'd be pointing to you know charts and graphs and scatter plots and saying, see here, um, it's a little hard to demonstrate uh, verbally, um, but um, we have both poll-based and non-poll-based forensic evidence. Um, and the importance of the non-poll-based forensic evidence um, is that polls can be, and generally are, routinely dismissed if there's a, a disparity between polls and vote counts. I mean, the default position is the vote counts are correct and the polls are off. Um, but when you then have that corroborated by non-poll based evidence, uh, and patterns that, that form, that we, that we're picking up, um, that suggest that democratic strongholds, that, that masses of democratic ballots, uh, were, uh, spiked, were not allowed to be counted, uh, or not delivered in the case of mail, uh, ballots and in any case were did not make it into the uh, ultimate official counts. Um, you know that was not poll based, and it's a little complex to explain. I'm actually going to be publishing a, a memo on this in the in the pretty near future. Um, but it's very solid uh, statistical forensics, and um, so it suggests that there was a lot of uh, manipulation going on, and some of it of the suppression variety, and probably some of it of the of the count manipulation variety. Um, but and they certainly could have, given all that, um, and given that Trump's margin of defeat uh, in the states that mattered for the electoral college was very thin, um, they could have found another five hundred thousand votes distributed over those critical battleground states and put him across. Um, based on what they were able to do. And when I say they, I don't know who. Um, you know, I've always had suspicions of Karl Rove and, you know, his operation. But whoever uh, has, so it's, it's, has it's, the Sounds act. like you believe in a deep state, too. Um, <laughs> I, only to the extent that – only to the extent that it – how should I put this? I believe I believe that operatives – are paid to operate, <laughs> whether they're yeah. Vladimir Putin or, you know, and his people or Karl Rove and his people um, or Steve Bannon and his people. I mean, there are operatives and you have a system here in the U.S. election system that we we study all the time for its vulnerabilities and for the evidence of exploitation of those vulnerabilities. And we're always looking at it and saying, well, you you could tweak this and, and close up that hole and tweak that and close up this hole. Um you know, as as either amateurs or professionals, I mean, it could range from somebody like me who really doesn't have, uh, you know, significant IT chops to somebody like Alex Halderman, who has extraordinary IT chops. Right. And we're always looking at this stuff and saying, well, here's a hole and there's a hole. Well, if you're an operative and you're charged with, you know, basically producing winners and that's what you're paid for and that's what your reputation rests on you're looking at the same system and you're finding the same holes and the idea that with the stakes being what they are you wouldn't be uh, attempting to exploit those holes just doesn't square with what we know about 
human beings and operatives uh, and politics. So, you know, and especially with a party that is doing all sorts of other profoundly unethical things um, to remain viable. And by that, I mean some of these voter suppression uh, voter, you know, very naked voter suppression legislation uh, and all the lies that go with it and all this nonsense about voter fraud, which is basically non-existent. Um, so, you know, the deep state, I, I'm not sure. I, I think there's a passive deep state and an active deep state. The passive deep state is the one that sort of turns a blind eye to uh, things that uh, threats to democracy and maybe doing that because it's really not all that enthusiastic about democracy. Actively trying to undermine democracy, um, maybe, uh, but I think that's more the operatives. And I don't think that necessarily, you know, Karl Rove is working for Bill Gates or George Soros. My feeling about the Bill Gateses and George Soroses of the world is they, they basically want things to work. That's how they make money. They want things to be unequal. They want business to have a free hand. Um, they're not, you know, thrilled with, with egalitarianism. Um, they, they basically want things to continue as they are. Um, and cause they do very well with that. So they're not trying to bring the whole thing, you know, crashing down in a heap. Um, but the Steve Bannons of the world and possibly the Carl Roves have a very, very different, um, sort of approach to democracy and the political system. And they are willing to undermine the whole thing. Um, in the case of somebody like Karl Rove, the, the bottom line is to win by means, by whatever means uh, are, are necessary. And if you allow, you know, skullduggery, if you allow uh, covert, operations and you allow, you know, rigging of, of, of vote counts and stuff, you're basically inviting him. And if it's not him, it's somebody else, um, to go and, and do this. So the real imperative here is, to, is to fix the system. And we haven't gotten the kind of support, uh, we should have for that. And I don't know if that's the deep state or that's just the way, you know, political inertia works. Um, I just know there hasn't been a fierce will to say, God damn it, you know, in this country, we got to have public observable vote counting. We have to have electoral transparency. You've seen it in other countries. You've seen it in Norway and the Netherlands and New Zealand and in Germany and other places. Easier to do there because they have a parliamentary system. They have a much shorter ballot. Um, but the bottom line is they, they got the message. Uh, after the 2016 election, they basically took one whiff and they said, no, we better, we better start counting our votes in public. Ireland's another one. Um, so, you know, we haven't done that. And you really would think that we would, um, because of everything that's at, at stake. Um, right now, politically passing even voting rights legislation, let alone a, a major overhaul of the way we go about, you know, casting and counting votes, um, seems to be politically stymied. Um, and that means the battles take place at the state level. And what we're seeing is that where the Republicans have control, they're cutting back on the franchise uh, in every way they possibly can, because that's a, you know, that, that, that wins for them. Um, and we're not making great advances in the mandating of audits or anything like that. So we're going to wind up with ad hoc 
you know, kind of attacks on the system along the lines of the cyber ninjas in Arizona. Um, it's going to be extremely politicized. I mean, I can't say that looking forward to 2022 and 2024, uh, I, I, you know, am breathing any sort of sigh of relief. I, I think we're, we're in for a very, very, uh, fraught, uh, process. And I, I don't, you know, I'm not sure what there is to be done about it. And one of the reasons why I want to publish the, the forensics, uh, memo that I'm working on is I, I just want to establish some sort of, baseline, you know, out there so that people can go into it with the knowledge of, okay, this is what happened in 2020. Uh, and this is what was done about it. And what was done about it uh, was, was outright perverse, because the people who really should have been screaming uh, about having been, uh, you know, had their, whatever, their landslide stolen in 2020 is the Democrats. You know, we had 27 uh, toss-up races, 27 toss-up races for the U.S. House. Uh, these were designated as toss-ups, equal chance of, of win, um, by uh, the Cook Political Report and the New York Times. Uh, very parallel designations from Nate Silver, 538, based on all sorts of input and aggregate polling and other inputs. Uh, well, of those 27 races, the Republicans won 27. They went 27 for 27 on toss-up races. Um, they even picked off six Democratic-leaning races, none, lost none of their own. Um, and that's why, you know, instead of gaining seats, as was expected, and as you would expect in a presidential election in which the your party's presidential candidate wins and wins handily in most places, um, Biden had negative coattails, long Negative coattails. So instead of picking up seats, the, the Democrats lost, uh, 11 seats, uh, in, in, in the, in the House. They lost, uh, two more state legislative chambers. They, the GOP has two more trifectas, which means complete control of the state, um, in two additional states. Um, the, uh, Senate only worked out as a 50-50 Senate. Um, because of Georgia, and that happened only because Donald Trump insisted in a kind of payback to Mitch McConnell, who he was accusing of cost, costing him his election, um, on, on, on injecting himself into that and making those two uh, Georgia runoffs uh, into uh, basically referenda on Donald Trump. Um, otherwise, the Republicans would have held their majority um, in an election that, that Biden won. Now, we see, you see... Uh, you know, uh, losses, uh, like this, um, in off-year elections, uh, when Democrats are at a disadvantage in terms of t- turnout, um, in Biden's, you know, uh, I mean, in, in Obama's, uh, off-year elections, you know, big losses for the Democrats one after another, but not with presidential elections that you win. So this was like, you know, unprecedented literally unprecedented in history what's going on are there are there organic explanations for it maybe you kind of really have to stretch in some of the cases um we we'd like to find out because we have a lot more to go on in terms of generating suspicion about the outcome of the 2020 election up and down the ballot than trump ever had the bottom line, though, is that Trump went out there and took all his political capital and threw it into the pot, put all his chips in the pot and said, you know, stop the steal. The Democrats, in response to that 
and this may be, you know, three-dimensional chess, four-dimensional chess uh, on the part of Trump, but I, I kind of doubt that, but it might be a very predictable response on the part of the Democrats. The election was perfect. We've never had a more secure election. Sit down and shut up. So they basically went and said, there's no grounds for questioning anything in this election. And they basically undercut all their own grounds for questioning the fact that from the neck down, from Biden, you know, if you take Biden out of the picture, that election was a disaster for the Democrats and an absolutely unpredicted, shocking, completely unexpected disaster that should have raised a lot of red flags. And we really should have been in there looking, doing what something along the lines of what Trump is doing in Arizona, probably doing it more the right way, uh, sampling some precincts, sampling some counties um, and looking at that. That's not my strong suit. I've been trying to put out information that will, you know, kind of inspire or motivate uh, others to go and do that, do that work. Um, you know, there's a, there's only only have two hands, as it were. Um, and I've been very slow to publish this in large part because all the oxygen has been taken up by the Stop the Steal movement and coming out with anything that suggests, you know, further instability, further illegitimacy, um, problems with the election uh, was going to get a very, very, very frosty reception um, from, you know, the poobahs. And so I've been, you know, kind of biding my time with this stuff, um, getting a lot of help. I just want to mention Reed Davis of econdataus.com, uh, E-C-O-N-D-A-T-A-U-S.com, has been doing amazing forensic work. He has some programs uh, that he has uh, modified, created and modified that pull election statistics and turn them into these really, really uh, helpful uh, scatter plots and line graphs um, that really have been facilitating uh, the forensic work that we're doing. So as we're looking at more and more of that data, we're seeing, you know, corroborating patterns um, that, yeah, while they could have organic ex explanations, they certainly rise to the level of, you know, a red flag suspicion. And what we really need is to look at some of the hard evidence in some of these counties in Texas and Florida and Arizona, actually, Wisconsin, a lot of places, uh, Maine, Iowa, where um, there are uh, forensics and statistical patterns uh, that are, are, are dubious, to say the least. You're very interesting. You're very interesting. So, so uh, should, should maybe uh, more people... In the, on the Democratic side, actually be thinking in terms of uh, jettisoning the leadership, which has consistently quashed interest in actually trying to uh, verify election results and uh, fix the election system. You know, it, maybe we need a kind of a populist movement on the Democrat side as well as the Republican side. And we saw some of that with the people who were uh, saying that Bernie Sanders had been robbed and things like that, uh, because it, it does seem to me that the Democratic National Committee and the very wealthy people who fund it, or at least some of them, are in, at some level in cahoots with some kind of what you might call a deep state. I'm not saying that Bill Gates is it or George Soros is it, but Peter Dale Scott of UC Berkeley has defined the deep state as the politically 
inter interested uh, and active rich who are willing to use their money to uh, affect politics, often in unethical or illegal ways. And clearly, I think the, this election result that we just saw was exactly what you would expect from sort of a quorum of the uh, world's wealthiest oligarchs. I mean, they wanted uh, to get rid of Trump and they probably didn't want a uh, blue tsunami. And so it's, it's kind of predictable. And, and so your detective work is showing that, yeah, it looks like that's probably what happened. But I don't see how we're going to fix this by being overly partisan about it, because now it, it seems like the DNC is pretty much run by people who are at least as uninterested in democracy as the Republicans are. Um, I wouldn't agree with that necessarily. I mean, the, the, the new chairman of the DNC is Jamie Harrison, and, uh, you know, he lost his race to Lindsey Graham. Um, it uh, he's interested. I can tell you personally, he is interested in this. What what he does with it is another issue and what he's up against in terms of I worked briefly at the DNC, like, you know, literally 40 years ago. Um, and I mean, I know that, you know, fundraising is a huge part of their job. So, you know, what he's up against is not really clear to me, uh, but he is he is actually interested. And um, the difficult thing, though, is, you know, apart from replacing the leadership, I mean, we, we can't even get, you know, much cover for Ron Wyden. I mean, you know, it, it's not like we have a major insurgency uh, in the halls of power, really, at any level. Um, I mean, Wyden has been Democratic senator from Oregon, has been uh, the point person on the reform legislation at the federal level. Um, he's been pretty, really strong about it. He, a little bit of buy-in from Klobuchar, a little bit of buy-in from Kamala Harris at one point. I mean, you know, to I would say token buy-in. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a pretty small beachhead. Uh, they're a long way from being able to, um, you know, uh, turn the leadership. Um, they have to, they have to get some more adherence along the way. And, you know, even the, the highly progressives, even, even the, the, um, Ocasio Cortez's and, 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 and for that matter, even Bernie Sanders. I mean, the very, very, very few are willing to make election transparency and, and voting rights um, their, you know, driving issue. Uh, it's been taken for granted for too long. It's a pretty new thing that all of a sudden it may be, you know, corrupted. Um, they haven't responded very quickly. And, you know, as far as a pop, I mean, I, I, which all by way of saying that I'm not exactly sure what to do if they're, you know, if anything. Um, and, uh, you know, because the, the real force behind election reform at this point, uh, would be MAGAs, <laughs> would be Republicans. And so in that sense, you know, this idea that, you know, it, 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 it would be better if we're nonpartisan. I mean, it has a certain amount of, of validity to it. Um, the problem is what they see as reform, um, is keep the computers, 
and make sure that uh, people of color can't vote. <laughs> so that's their idea of, you know, how to reform the system is we got to cut back on voter fraud uh, and keep those illegal immigrants and, and people of color from uh, illegally voting. Well, well quick, 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 so, uh, quick interjection. Could some of these Trump loving Republicans have a point in that the uh, immigration issue does involve a Democrats who have an interest in, as Tucker Carlson says, replacing the current electorate with a new electorate that's going to vote for them? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that if you're looking at, uh, the sort of long-term trajectory of the country's demographics and the country's population, it, it's, it's definitely advantaged Democrats. If you have, uh, more people coming in who are poor, working class, diverse, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's a particularly driving strategy. I mean, I think Tucker Carlson is full of shit and virtually, pardon my, oops, I can't say that on the radio, Uh-oh. but he's, <laughs> yeah, you have to beep that one out. Yeah, you have to beep it out. But I mean, you know, it, it, it's like, it, there's so much that he brings up that is, is just, just of whole cloth. And this is one thing. I mean, this is, they won't replace us. This is, this is the, this is the essence of fascism. The essence of fascism and white supremacy. And, you know, no, the Democrats are not trying to bring in 50 million immigrants so that they can win elections. The fact is this country needs workers. It needs people to actually take jobs. And if they want the economy not to collapse, we've got to have immigration because the birth rate is down. And so, you know, there are many, many reasons uh, of, of, of basic, you know, economic with a basic economic foundation um why you have to have a a a a, 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 a more sensible immigration policy and of course that's been tied up in partisan gridlock for decades now um but no i don't think it's some nefarious scheme by the democrats they're not going to bring in enough to um you know uh, sing to replace the whites in this country and if they do they do fine. So, what is your Republican Party's response supposed to be to that? Let's broaden our tent. Let's open our tent, widen our tent, appeal to some of these people. That's not been what their response is. Their response is let's keep these people from voting, and by that you can judge them. Well, uh, yeah. Rather than arguing that you know Tucker Carlson is right, the Democrats are plotting to replace you, and this sort of stuff. Uh, couldn't, couldn't we agree though that there is a legitimate debate about whether it would be better to try to improve the economy by bringing in new workers and so on and so forth, or whether, uh, it's, it might be better to try to preserve the, uh, the values and culture of the, the current group of people in the country. I mean, if you went to most other countries, such as, well, the Asian countries, or, you know, I'm familiar with Morocco where I lived quite a bit. And I, I know at some level, if you had an immigration policy in Morocco and they had a, a kind of immigration under colonialism where French settlers were coming in, the Algerians didn't like that very much. But of course, that was at gunpoint. But there are very few countries that have a demographic ethnic majority that would be very happy about uh, becoming uh, a minority as quickly as white Americans are becoming a minority so I, I would argue that those of us who actually are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an American Muslim. I don't mind Muslims coming to America. I want more Muslims in America. Personally, at the same time, 
I understand the arguments on the other side, and I can see why, given that with automation, we need less and less labor, especially unskilled labor, uh, to produce goods, that it doesn't really make sense to be bringing more of it in economically. So I, I think we need to be a little bit more open-minded when we have discussions with people on that kind of issue. Well, I would agree. And I would say, look, these problems are very complex, even with the best will in the world and the most sort of, you know, um, academic or nonpartisan approach to these problems. I don't think there are any perfect solutions. Uh, you're going to have mismatches. Same with the Industrial Revolution. There's going to be dislocation. There's going to be mismatches. Um, you are going to have geographic uh, schisms. You're going to have... Um, urban-rural schisms, obviously, you're going to have climate change affecting, you know, the value and the, the livability of certain areas. Um, and all this somehow has to be worked out. And usually the working out of this is very much in favor of those who already have wealth and power. Um, so whether they're Democrats or Republicans, I mean, they look at right, right, themselves. They, they want to bring low-wage immigrants in to drive wages down. So they're the ones who are pushing open immigration, Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, to some extent, it, it drives wages down. Although we don't have to drive wages down because we could man, you know, you could go Richard Nixon and have wage and price controls. I mean, the ultimate progressive, Richard Richard Milhouse Nixon. Um, I mean, I think the problem for me comes up with when the response to all these changes is a parochial identification with one's tribe or one's group. And I don't see myself as, I mean, I'm white. I'm obviously white. I'm obviously male. Uh, but when I look at all these, you know, political occurrences, I mean, I look at them as what's going to make this system and the whole of the system work. I mean, if it's health care, if it's guaranteed wages, if it, whatever it might be, um, if there are more people who don't look like me here, I don't care. I mean, I grew up in New York City. I mean, my neighborhood in the Bronx when I was born was 99 percent white. By the time I you know, went to college, it was about 40 percent white. But, you know, and then it was 10 percent white. Um, I didn't care. I, I, I see people as people. I, that's me. You know, I'm a, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, if a woman – I just don't – those distinctions mean far less to me than they do to somebody like Tucker Carlson or, you know, somebody who wants to preserve the the whatever it is, the culture and tradition of America. I look at that culture and tradition and say there's much that's good about it. There's much that we can carry forward and can – preserve. There is also much that is appalling about it um, that we would do very well to let go of. But my real problem comes up with, okay, we'll, we'll have this battle on a policy level, but don't come out and make it really hard for people to vote. Make them stand online for six or eight hours to vote or not send ballots to their zip code because you're claiming that millions of people voted illegally when you have no evidence for that at all. That is monkeying with the fundamentals, the, the bedrock protocol of electoral politics and of a democracy is this process by how this works and making up lies about that process and using those lies 
to induce a kind of clearly outcome-oriented change in procedures um, and make sure that the electorate doesn't get too big. I mean, the founding fathers might approve. I mean, they were not happy, you know, you had to have property qualifications, but times have really changed. And you want to live in a country where people are, once they have become Americans, once they're welcomed in and they have become citizens, um, that they have equal rights. And we're not seeing that. When you can walk into a precinct in a suburb and vote in three minutes, as I have virtually my entire life, walk in, vote, walk out, and then you see a line in Cobb County, Georgia, literally stretching three miles, um, you know, with with 90% of the voters, voters of color, um, this is gross. This is absolutely gross. And we, and as a democracy, we should be absolutely ashamed of that. No, yeah, I agree completely. You know, no, so, yeah, which, I mean, that's which, what which, which, which uh, stole more votes? Um, this kind of voter suppression that Greg Palast uh, writes so eloquently about, or the uh, computer uh, variety of vote fraud that you strongly suspect is happening at a very large scale? Uh, we don't know. I mean, I think that. The problem is that, you know, in the absence of really hard evidence, ballots that are accessible, chain of custody maintained, uh, can be recounted, compared with machine tallies, et cetera, et cetera. Until that work has been done, it's really hard to tell what part of the pipeline the shift has occurred. What we do know is that going all the way back to, you know, 2000, really the 2000 election, uh, and certainly with HAVA, Help America Vote Act in 2002, um, that, you know, election after election, we've seen this red shift. We've seen vote counts to the right of polls. We've seen vote counts in competitive elections um, shifted where vote counts in non-competitive elections were not. We've seen that all the way through the, the 2020 election. Um, so there's a fair amount of evidence for both things going on. And in fact, you know, I, there's no reason to believe that there would only be one thumb on the scale. Uh, disinformation is another, you know, another way of, of altering uh, you get into voters' minds and get them to alter the vote they cast or more frequently get them to stay home. And there's been very, that's been very open about spreading disinformation in the black community, um, you know, of, of hostility against uh, white Democratic candidates, even in some cases, black Democratic candidates, not so that they vote against them, but so that they say, ah, nobody, there's no, uh, you know, nobody's for us. We're just going to stay home and suppressing the vote via disinformation. You can suppress the vote by altering the way ballots are delivered in, you know, in mail-in ballots, uh, signature matching, uh, long lines at the polls, ballot marking devices that, that clog up and voters get frustrated and, you know, and then, if that is insufficient, um, you have this secret pipeline by which the votes are counted. And we've seen lots of evidence over the, I mean, anybody who's read my book, you know, Red Code Red or followed along the, the bouncing ball, um, you know, and the subtitle of Code Red is computerized elections and the war on American democracy. So it focuses, you know, mostly on what's happening inside the computers. And there's a ton of evidence in that book, um, just like, Greg Palast has a ton of evidence uh, for, for uh, you know, the modes of attack on the system that, that he has been focusing on. So I really think it's both and, and it's amounted to a general veer in American politics to the right, uh, away from progressive candidates towards, in some cases, 
quote unquote, moderate candidates, but mostly towards far right candidates, which is one reason why this country is now, you know, dealing with so many uh, far right uh, politicians, why so many Republicans that are not far right or pro Trump Republicans are retiring and leaving. Um, you know, that that should raise some serious eyebrows. Um, and, you know, that's that in the absence of all these thumbs on the scale. There's no way it doesn't make any political or psychological sense for the Republicans, the current GOP to be be behaving the way it is behaving. I mean, the cardinal rule of politics is you expand your outreach. Yes, you get out your vote. They have, you know, people working on that all the time. Get your voters out. But especially when you're a minority party, when you have. I don't know what it is right now, 26, 27 percent of, of registered voters identifying with your party. Um, you you attempt to expand, you you triangulate, you do whatever you have to do. George Bush, it was compassionate conservatism. Bill Clinton, it was triangulation. And, you know, they're doing exactly the opposite. They're, they're basically Thelma and Louise hand clasped with Donald Trump, driving over what should be a political cliff. And they're doing it without any seeming, you know, uh, hesitancy whatsoever. Well, the only way that makes sense is if they believe that the thumbs they have on the scale are going to be enough to take that minority base and turn it into a majority of voters when the votes are, quote unquote, counted. And that is that should put chills up everybody's spine because what they're looking at ushering in, you know, is not the Gerald Ford administration. It's not the George W. Bush administration. It is flat out fascism and basically a theocracy uh, and a, an extreme right wing wing government that is going to be strongly at odds with the majority of the people, which is exactly what Steve Bannon wants. He wants everything to blow up. And I think that has been in one way or another. And I don't know how conscious it is, but it's spread like a cancer. Uh, and Donald Trump has been, you know, really at the center of this. Um, it has spread throughout that that party uh, and their media. Trump is a heck of a leader for a theocracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, the irony. I'll, is so I'll, I'll vote for the supreme leader of Iran over him in a heartbeat. I, I actually like uh, Sayyid Ali Khamenei, who's a deeply religious man. But but Trump. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, a theocracy in the sense that he he what he wants is he wants complete power and he wants to grift to his heart content. He's a born. Uh, I don't know what what you would call it, but it, but it, it, he is I, there. He has his own agenda. But in the in the in the wake of that agenda, you've got the Tom Cottons of the world. You've got the the DeSantis's of the world. You've got the Greg Abbotts of the world. You've got the Marjorie Taylor. Those those people people scare me more than Trump does. Yeah, no, but but there's the ones that would be under his cape and, you know, doing whatever they're doing. uh, Amy Coney Barrett, for that matter. I mean, this is moving towards a kind of strict right wing, you know, handmaid's tale kind of America. And it's not, I don't think it's that impossible that that push, push happens. Well, I, I, hope, I hope this isn't another Cassandra-like uh, 
prophecy that comes true. And I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan Simon. It's always great talking with you. Uh, keep up the great work. And I look, get, send me some of those charts and graphs if you can, and I'll post them. I will absolutely do that. And it's just fun to have you. Okay. Take care. This is Truth You Got Radio. See you next week. You're listening to Revolution.